Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. I also have an insert there for you with the text printed. Come to the the last chapter of this great book of Isaiah. Bob Albright said many times to me as we got to the end of the book how disappointed he was that we're coming to the close of this great book. Well, now he can talk to Isaiah directly. But we have the next best thing. We have God's Word that is given through the prophet. God breathes out His Word through appointed people in history, guiding and directing, safeguarding His message so that we would have His inspired Word, the very Word of God before us, and we have that. We're looking at Isaiah 66. We've already looked at the first two verses. These first two verses set up the rest of the section. The section is verse 1 to verse 6. So we'll go back through those verses briefly now to understand better what is being communicated in those other verses, verses 3 through 6. He is, the prophet that is, addressing the people of God now and the wide scope, the nation of Israel. You know, sometimes he speaks to the faithful in the midst because they're not all faithful, meaning only some have faith in the provision of redemption that God gives. Only some have faith in the picture of the Messiah to come. It seems like the majority do not believe this, but they're identified, at least to the world, as the people of God, the nation of Israel, or Judah now. And they have a temple, and they have priests, and they have the Bible, and they have circumcision and other rites and rituals that identify them as God's people. So now, this section is to the whole of the people of God, and it's a challenge for sure. It's a challenge about true worship versus false worship, and he's speaking to people who say they're his people to discern which it is that they practice. We see in this passage the right way to approach God and the wrong way. We've already seen the right way in verse 1 and 2. We'll see it again. Then verse 3 down to 6 expresses the wrong way. And it's a challenge to Christians as individuals, but to churches and to denominations to consider ourselves in this light. Now, with that said, please follow as I read God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and therefore authoritative word. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. 
Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, grant to us clarity, clarity of understanding as we consider your word. Make us to tremble at your word. Tremble from a reverence, but also tremble from amazement that by your grace you have revealed yourself to us, your will to us, your son to us, so that we might know how to be right with you. We thank you for your word, and we do tremble at it. Give us faithfulness to your word, for your word is truth. Please sanctify us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you remember from your Bible stories days how good things were for Israel at the beginning and then how bad they got, the place that we now read. Think of how this has worked in life, though. Maybe if you have had the experience of partnering with someone for a business or some successful venture, whatever it is, there's kind of this moment where everything is clicking just right, and you think there's no way this thing could go bad. It's just perfect. We get along great. The business is going great. The venture is going great. And you just can't foresee this, ever, this formula ever getting broken up. And then it happens, and it breaks up. We see this in marriages often. People in a marriage, it's healthy, it's vibrant, it seems. You can't imagine yourself not being happy with this person and vice versa. Everything's working well. There's harmony. There's beauty in it. There's vitality in it. And you can't foresee a day where you wouldn't feel the exact same way you do now. But then something happens. Division. Divorce. When you're a church that's young and strong and It's been formed for really solid biblical reasons, and there's an excitement about it. There's a commitment to purity. There's a love among the brethren, and there's just a a sense of the Lord is really blessing this. I can't imagine this looking any different. This has got to be something that lasts, and we're focusing on the Word. It's eternal. We know God's power is working. Certainly, this will be something that goes on for a long, long time. But then churches lose their moorings and they drift into unfaithfulness. We see it all the time. All these cases, businesses, marriages, churches, they start with high expectations and a certain level of purity about it, and then something happens, and it ends in disillusion, in division. There's always, in human experience with relationships, there's always the threat of something noxious creeping in to these human experiences. And this has shown itself to especially be the case in Christianity, in this entity that's identified with Christ, in the big scope of things. What do I mean by noxious? I use this word very carefully. The word noxious means poisonous, something that could be, seem subtle or benign but then become deadly. It's deadly. That's what it means to be noxious. It's harmful. It only takes a small dose of it, and it spreads fast, and it does a lot of damage. Pernicious is another word that could be used here. Damaging. Destructive. It's some additive or something or some twist or some change that creates um, a complete makeover of everything. Starts small, but gets big. Often when we think of the word noxious, we use it 
in relationship to weeds. You know, weeds in the garden or weeds in the lawn, they're noxious. They're invasive is a word that usually goes with noxious. You know, it just, you don't even see them. You buy some soil and you start to plant your garden or you plant your lawn. And before your grass seeds come up or your vegetable seeds come up, weeds are there because they grow really fast, faster than most vegetables. And they can take over quickly. They're noxious in this way. They're invasive in this way. And they choke out the good stuff. Or they, they severely debilitate the good stuff. It's noxious in this sense. In the passage before us, as we read of this description, God through Isaiah is addressing those who are understanding of true worship, those who are participating in false worship and setting them up to see. What has happened where this entity called God's people is now so mixed, in fact, to the point where it seems like the majority of the nation is practicing a noxious religion? one that's actually odious to God. It's not something that's sweet to God. It it seems to be the majority. They're doing all the outward things, the sacrifices, temple worship, their identity, all these things. But God looks at those things and he sees them as odious because it's false. It's not based on really believing or resting in God's salvation. It's not in humility. It's not with contrition It's certainly not trembling about what God has said. The passage shows a division within the people called the people of God. The world would look at this group as an entity, the nation of Israel. But within, it's very divided and for very specific reasons. Outwardly, the average Jew was probably doing the same thing. Going to the temple, sacrifices, prayers, whatever. But there was something different, and only God can see that, see that to the heart. But there are some outward evidences that show up. Divided in heart. Many were carrying out outward actions that had no real inward reality. There was no connect. It was just an outward ritualism. And what we learn from this passage, 1 to 6 now, outward displays of devotion to God must match an inward reality, or they're actually just empty acts of a noxious religion that is odious to God. It doesn't matter how formal it looks or how genuine it looks on the outside. What we think or what some might think is pleasing to God, if it's not done based on trust and faith in God's provision of redemption, if we don't approach God the right way, then it's actually not just empty, it's noxious. It spreads. It actually has a damaging impact on the whole if it's left to be. And it's odious to God. With this, let's go to the text and see how true worship is differentiated from false worship very clearly. Verse 1 and verse 2, we return there. We spent all of last week on these two verses. True worship or true religion described here. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So God approaches with his greatness, with his sovereignty, with his power. He approaches man based on who he is in relationship to who we are. It's a revelation that's important for us. We have to understand it in order to approach God properly. To be able to approach God, we start with his greatness and our deficit before him who he is, and who we are. That's an important starting place as we approach God. And he says, earth is one of my creations, essentially. 
I mean, the thing that you think is uh, sustaining you, the earth, or the thing you think is the end of all things, you know, everything is right here before us. This is ours. God says it's a footstool that he puts his feet on. It, It puts us in our place as creatures. The creator says this about the earth and its inhabitants. He's made everything in it. And so when we go about in our religious displays, building the temple was one of them for the Israelites, a big concern for them as their temple got trampled under Babylon, and then they had to go back and rebuild it. It was a big point of personal pride. That wasn't the purpose of the temple. The temple was given by God to remind them of God's needed presence with them. It wasn't meant to be a display of their constructing prowess or some great grand invention of their own to show the nations who they were, though they viewed it that way. So he knows this. He sees their pride is in themselves. He appro- the people are approaching him that way, and he says, this temple, what is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? Well, again, the greatness of God is before us. Verse 2, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. You haven't invented anything that makes you able to approach me. Um, It's not on the basis of your doing something that makes you approach me. Uh, My greatness has given you the materials to even build the best things you've ever built, which, by the way, are only part of the entity that I put my feet on. So there's a a humility that comes when we meet God. Um, So to approach God, we have to come in this humble state. And then verse 2, the second part, spells out for us the most important words of this chapter that help us know how we come to God. But this is the one to whom I will look, or the one who I will regard, who I will receive into my presence. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. These things build upon one another. The humility comes from believing what he says in verse 1 about his greatness and who we are. Who he is and who we are humbles us. Now, from this place of humility... Recognizing who God is and who we are, we're humble, but we're also in a state of realizing that we are sinful, that we can't stand before God's presence like we are. So this promotes contrition. And contrition is an honest assessment of our sinful state before God. It's honest, it's open, it doesn't try to make excuses, it's contrite, it's honest, it's genuine. This contrition about our state before God, which puts us in the best possible place to receive his word. And when we receive his word, we tremble at it. We tremble at it because what this great God of heaven and earth is doing is he's promoting humility in us by showing himself. We now have contrition about our sins. What do we do? We're in trouble. And God, with his word, says, this is how you are made right. And in the book of Isaiah, it was a clear depiction in in the servant songs that we went through, especially chapter 53, that I will send one who will bear your iniquities. And that makes us tremble. We tremble at his word first because of the gospel. It tells us how to be right with God. That if we would rest in the finished work of the servant of God, the suffering servant, we could approach him now. We have to be humbled for this. We have to believe we're sinners. And we have to tremble at that word of the truth. And we don't stop there. We tremble at the gospel. And then we tremble that God would give us his commandments and give us his spirit to walk in them. So the, it's the approach to the word of God is it's, we're, re, we're reverent because we're, 
we're amazed that he would not leave us to wander like the world wanders, not knowing what to do, what anything means. Why are we here? Who are we here for? God answers that for the people of God. He gives his, his word. In the midst of a lost people, we're amazed, we tremble at that. Why would God show us that grace that he would give us this revelation, this special revelation? That's how we approach God. That's what true worship is. We're humbled by who God is. We're contrite. We know we're sinners. And we tremble at his word of promise, his word of command, his word of revelation, so we can know the truth. We don't have to be lost. Verse 1 and 2 capture what true religion is, in the religion used in the right sense. But verse 3 immediately describes something different. When people analyze verse 1 and 2, they'll realize this isn't where they're at if their hearts are tender, if the Lord has moved them towards himself. Many will stay stiff-necked in their position. Look at verse 3, down to verse 5, where we see a depiction of what was actually happening on the large uh, for the majority of the practice of Israel at this time. False worship, or what I'm calling noxious religion, because it's It's fast-moving once it finds its way in. Remember, God knows the heart, and he's speaking to their outward actions. Verse 3, he who slaughters an ox, which, by the way, is a lawful, prescribed sacrifice. He's not not against sacrifices. It's the fact that they don't believe, that they don't tremble at his word. They're not humble in their approach. We know this by the way he places this in the text. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. The act of worship is actually awful in his eyes. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their souls delight in their abominations. See, the focus is on them. Now look closely at these different um, delineated practices. Uh, All of them start with something that God calls the people of Israel to do. First, their outward action, being lawful. He who slaughters an ox, lawful, is like one who kills a man, unlawful and wicked. So you're outwardly acting a certain way, but God's perception of it is awful because you don't come in humility. You don't come with contrition. You don't come trembling at my word. Next again, he who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Sacrificing a lamb was the most meaningful of all the sacrifices, and you know why. It was meant to depict the coming Messiah, the the spotless lamb who would die for us so that we would be forgiven of our sins. He would take on our sins, be slaughtered by God's judgment, his just judgment, taking our sins away, we'd be saved. Our Passover lamb, Christ, sacrifice for us. So the lamb was an important sacrifice, but God would view this as meaningless because they didn't believe it. Like one who breaks a dog's neck, I know this is hard to hear, and some of the veterinarian background just informed me the reason why this is important. Before the rabies vaccination, dogs were a, almost a complete nuisance, and they were even dangerous because they would carry diseases. You couldn't let them get too close, and it sounds awful, but it wouldn't be anything for someone to break a dog's neck if it was hanging around too much because it could transfer disease. It was a meaningless animal to these folks at this time. So sacrificing a lamb the most meaningful of the sacrifices, God would view it as breaking a dog's neck. It's outward action that's not inwardly tied to true faith, to true humility, contrition, 
and trembling at the word of God revealed. The gospel, more the same. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. An acceptable offering, especially after harvest, would be grain to show dependence on God for providing more grain. You give the first fruits of that, that would be the offering it was given, it was burned, it was sacrificed, it was donated, and then God would uh, be blessed by the dependence of the people shown upon by this offering. But he who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood, a totally unacceptable, vile offering that was even unlawful, that's how God would view something that was supposed to be lawful. They did not approach God with humility because he is the great God. They did not approach God with contrition about their sin. Apparently didn't even think themselves that sinful. Surely they weren't trembling at his word. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense is like one who blesses an idol. Frankincense, um, things that smell good, would usually conjure the idea of prayer. Uh, you put frankincense out, it's supposed to show our offerings of praise up to God. That's what it would remind us of as we would give it if we were living in this day. But God looked at this, a prescribed offering. That's just the same as far as I'm concerned, says God. You blessing an idol, and you know how much God hates idols. All of this is because their outward actions were not tied to inward devotion. They were proud actions. They were not honest about their sin. And they were not regarding the word of God or they would not be doing these things in this way. I guess verse 3, the last part, really sums it up. These have chosen their own ways. They've decided their own way to approach God. You see what it's saying? They've come to God their own way. And their soul delights in their abominations. Now, it's not that they know their abominations because they're so far from God at this point. They're just going through these actions that are pleasing to them and expecting God to be pleased. I guess it would be sort of like us reciting our prayers and God saying, you're just yelling curses at me, uh, giving an offering. It's just like stealing from the poor to God. Someone singing a song of praise would just be like someone denouncing God in public. It would be the opposite of what was depicted by the action because there's not an inward devotion to reality. No humility in their approach to God. Remember, that's the right way to approach God. No contrition about their sin or admission of it. And no trembling at God's word, which becomes key to all of this. Franz Dalich said, it's the lifeless works of men spiritually dead. Outwardly it looks like a ritual, looks religious, people are participating in it. But inwardly they're dead. And it's odious to God. And that kind of ritualistic, go through the motions, fake outward worship, is, it stinks in the nostrils of God. And we see what happens to these who practice this, which, by the way, would have been the majority probably of Judah at this time. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. They're calling out to God through all these means. But remember what else they were doing? They were calling out to Baal too, right? They had high places to Molech. Uh, They thought all the religions had something to offer. We just happen to be Jewish, so this is going to be the chief expression for us, so we'll build the temple up. And God says, I'll receive none of that. Because that's that's not acknowledging who the great God of heaven and earth is. That's not being humble in any way. That's saying, I've got an idea that all these are the same. doesn't matter. I have an idea of how I'll approach God. No contrition about sin because they're not desperate enough to realize what they need before God. So they're certainly not having any trouble with twisting what his word is. Not trembling before it, that's for sure. 
I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. They did what was pleasing to them. They ignored what God said. They were not listening to what God's word said or heeding what it said. This is false religion versus true religion. Now, they can look the same outwardly. You can have the same liturgy. You can have the same basic uh, rites and rituals. Um, now, there's things that will start to give away the falseness of it. But on the front, looking at Judah, they've got the temple. They've got the priests. They're going through the motions of these things. They're saying the prayers. They're circumcising their children, which is different than the other nations. And so there's this, this outward look of unity that God cuts and makes a clear-cut division between what is true and what is not, what is false what is real. Now, let's pause for a second. Longer than a second. Let's pause for a moment and consider the dynamic that's occurring here in Scripture. Because it's not new. What we witness among the people called God's people has repeated itself over and over and over again. In every faithful church of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what denomination it is or the particular forms and functions, but a faithful church that truly believes, that trembles, humble before God, believes they're sinners, trembles before the word, primarily the gospel, and then the commands that come from that, any church that believes that is at risk of falling prey to noxious religion. It's true of denominations, it's true of churches, it's true of us. This is how it happens in churches and denominations. A church starts with a humble dependence on God's word and his gospel. Following this basic pattern you see that God works in verse 1 and verse 2. The church celebrates the preaching of the gospel. Can't wait to hear the Bible open because it's God's word. And we tremble before it in the most reverent, awe-filled way. We celebrate the preaching of that word because God has supernaturally revealed it. We get that it's special revelation, that we're lost without this message. There's clarity about the person of Jesus Christ from Scripture. He's the only way for people to be right with God. The church celebrates this. We believe this. We think God's given us as a mantle to the watching world that's struggling and lost. They need us more than they know it to be faithful to that message of Christ. There's a trembling at his word. But there's also built in a right defiance of the world because the world doesn't know this message, has to hear it. We have to be careful about letting the world tell us what the message is. We need to tell the world that message. Don't lock ourselves up in a holy huddle, but be pure about it, but then reach out to it. But also know that unless God gives rebirth, spiritual rebirth, which he does through that message, people won't all understand it. They'll think we're crazy. But the church is okay with that because they know that's how it is. But then something can happen. This is where it seems to happen. There's a bit of a pressure from the world that gets to be felt more heavily. Maybe it's our, you know, our membership, we're all in the world functioning among unbelievers, and that's what God wants. We're ambassadors, there's no question. But some pressure comes upon us corporately as a church. The feeling of the pressure sometimes causes a reconsideration of the Scriptures. Now, that's not always bad. Let's test the Scriptures every day, all the time. It can withstand our testings. But some 
pressure comes from the world that says, now, what, what, what does the Bible say there? That's not right. That can't be right. Now, what are they basing on? What they feel like is right or wrong. And they're saying, I don't feel that's right. So, and you're saying that your Bible says that. So I, I don't think that's the case. And more people out here say, no, we don't think that's right, what you're saying the Bible says. And so they start pressuring people in the church and the church in general. And the church starts to, you know, analyze. Okay, well, what does the Bible say? Let's be sure we're clear about this. People will say, the Bible's not reasonable. And people start to think to themselves, well, is there something to this? Is, what is this? The teaching seems to be out of sorts, what the prevailing wisdom is. And instead of trembling at the word at some point, there is a wondering about the word. I'm not talking about a healthy, let's go and analyze and see what God's word says on this subject. It's, we know what it says on the subject, but why does it seem so out of sorts with what everyone's saying out there? And it's at that moment where a weed grows, where something happens, it seems. Instead of trembling at the word, there's a wondering. Smart people out there are making fun of the Bible. They're picking apart minuscule points. There can be a tendency at this point for the church to regroup to respond to the answering critics, which is fine. But even when they give reasonable responses, the critics still think Christianity is foolish. I I keep explaining to them, can't they see this is what the Bible says? Well, the Bible says that, but they don't agree with it. Then you start feeling, well, they don't accept us. They don't accept, we're extremists, we're this, we're that. And that bugs many in the church. We want them to take us seriously. So we start making accommodations. At first, we just don't acknowledge some argument they have. We still believe the Bible's true about it, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about this. But eventually, when we come back to that, we don't believe that anymore either. That's what happens oftentimes. It happened in Judah just like this. They were Israel, specially, connect, specially identified. God told them how to behave and how to act. But when they got in with other nations, instead of looking to God for deliverance, they looked at Egypt to fight off Assyria, or you fill in the blank nation, and they bought into some Egyptians, the Egyptian gods, um, they decided to let them build some of their temples and their land, and, and they started compromising these things. We still believe what we believe, but you can do this too. And before you know it, they didn't know which was which. And they no longer look like anything different than any other nation. That's what happens. Before you know it, and notice it closely, the humility that comes from knowing the greatness of God is substituted with being scared of the world. That's how it happens. We look away from God into what everybody's thinking of us. Do they accept us? Do they think we're okay? And we have, no longer are we humble before God. We're actually proud about how we can situate ourselves with the world. Pride replaces humility. Pride about ourselves and our ability to get along. And we are immediately off the track at this point. And we're not then humble like we should before God. We're not even talking about sin because no one out there really wants to spend a lot of time talking about sin. Unless at the moment it's culturally insensitive. You know, there's another way the shift happens in the church that I want to note. It could be, and this happens often, there's some social issue that's a real serious issue that the church should be concerned with. Christians should have answers for. But pressure comes from the world. The world says, you're not doing enough about this situation, church. And therefore, you're participating in it, they might even say. Which could be true. We should repent of sins like that. But we get too enamored in addressing the issue with the world's view of us addressing the issue, that we leave the track of the gospel behind while we're trying to address the issue. See, no, no, we're real. We're really Jesus' people because we do this. And we spend so much time with that trying to get their approval to do this thing that we come at it the wrong angle. And by the time we are realigned, we forgot what the main thing is again. And the main thing is that issue. 
It's no longer, first, how do we relate to God? It ought to be humbly. He's the great God of heaven and earth. It's no longer about, I'm a sinner. I can't stand before God. It's no longer trembling at his word. It's trembling at people. That's how it happens. And that's exactly what he warns Israel about in verse 5. Verse 5. Remember to this point he's been speaking to the whole, how to rightly approach God. Then he describes the wrong approach to God in verse 3 and into verse 4. Now verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. He's differentiating now. See what he's doing? He's talking to the whole, but there's only some who tremble at the word. Listen to me, those of you who are trembling at the word. Your brothers, your countrymen in this context, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that they may see your joy. But it is they who will be put to shame. What is he saying? There will be people who name themselves as Christians or say they're part of Christianity, but they'll look at your small little sectarian extreme self and they'll kick you out or they'll hate you for it or they'll castigate you for it. They'll say, they're not one of us. And when they kick you out, they'll say, God, we've done you a favor getting rid of these people. Now, they've reconstructed a whole different religion. They've made it on their own basis. We don't fit in it, so you're out of it but we're doing the real work of God. I have a good friend who was a, said he was a devout Christian at one point, and now he's a complete universalist. He means all religions lead to heaven. And he would say to me with a straight face that this is really what God is, what he describes. Because he really believes it. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at the, his word. Know what's coming. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for, your na- for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. God, you'll be happy with us kicking these extremists out. But it is they who shall be put to shame. It is they who shall be put to shame. Much of American Protestantism has really followed this road. If you look at the histories of multiple denominations and really where they are, either officially in their statements or in their actions, the United Methodist Church, the United Church of Christ, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the American Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church USA, which we came out of in 1973, all either in word or deed follow this conception of things. They have largely succumbed to the fear of man over the fear of God. They become arrogant about their innovations and understanding of how we should approach God. They reject the Bible as God's word, so they are far from trembling before it. Outward displays of devotion to God must match an inward reality, or they are empty acts of a noxious religion that is odious to God. And beware, because it's very, very subtle and sneaky, especially in the Bible Belt. Um, Because the outward, the buildings, the outward liturgy, even some of the readings could look identical to the way they have looked for years in faithful churches. And that lulls people in, so they come into the place, and as the proverbial frog sits in the kettle and the water's turned up, hey, this is just like the liturgy it was when I was a kid. And they remember their grandparents as being godly people, so they're sitting in the pew now, and this pastor is having us read these same prayers that I prayed when I was a kid. And that's enough to kind of keep us settled in the spot. But over time, 
the message, there's not a clear message of the gospel. There's not a clear message of what God's will is for his people. There's not a clear depiction of what is described for us, say, in verse 1 and verse 2. And over time, though, it feels religious enough, but then you've kind of been reprogrammed in your thinking. You haven't heard it in so long, you don't even know what you're missing anymore, and the water's at a full boil at that point. And pastors are the worst about this. Because let me tell you what a liberal pastor really thinks about you. They think you can't really understand the technical things of the Word of God, so they'll cast their degrees before you. You know, I did seminary, and I've got a PhD, and I've got this. They want the people to believe that they have some special insight that can really help you understand the Bible, because you're probably taking it too serious, or your fundamentalist aunts and uncles taught you this. Let me tell you the real way you should understand this. That's what the liberal pastor thinks about you, about people in the pew. So we'll go ahead and do these these prayers and these verses stuff because people are comfortable with that. But over time, I'll show them the real truth. And I'll be doing God a favor when they become much less judgmental. They'll be better for the world around. And I'll be doing my social good for the rest by pastoring people in this way. The world will be better if people think that way. That's a side note. The only thing a pastor's degree should do anything for you is make you believe more in the word. They're worthless otherwise. Any schooling that doesn't help me help you believe the word of God is junk. Outward displays of devotion to God must match an inward reality or they're an empty act of noxious religion and it's odious to God. You can ask several questions of any church, any pastor, this one included. Do they preach the clear gospel of grace the grace of God through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins and is it by faith alone and Christ alone? Do you believe the Bible is God-breathed? Is it really God's word? Is it authoritative? Does it, yes, conflict with the prevailing wisdom of the age? And many times, yes, that would be an indicator that it is God's word and not man's word. Do they say there are many ways to God? A God-fearing Muslim, a God-fearing Hindi, a God-fearing Jew for that matter, a God-fearing anything, they're saved if they're just devout in it. Are they saying those kinds of things? Does it seem that Christianity to this church or to this denomination or to this person, it's really just a cultural, high cultural expression of a universal belief in God. It looks like way in America, suburban America. It'd look a little different if you're in India, if you're in Bangladesh, or if you're in Africa somewhere. Um, But Christianity, that's the, the best expression of this. Are they saying that kind of stuff? That's what Judah looked like And you see what God's attitude was towards this very clearly. But it is they who shall be put to shame. Because they're standing in their pride before God, saying, I can figure this out. I will will draw all my knowledge of the world and the world religions and philosophies, and I will construct a way for people to know God. See, they're not concerned about what God says, just what we think might be best for people, and we'll give it to you. And of course, if you do that, you're not going to be contrite about sin. Sin is ever-changing. What are the dynamics of this? What is sin today will not be tomorrow. So there's no opportunity for contrition. And surely we already know the Bible's a loose-leaf document to this group. So there's no trembling at the word. In fact, there's more of a defiance of what is said to be the word. It's quite the opposite. Now it, it's funny. You can look exactly the same building-wise. You can walk in for the first five minutes and maybe think the same thing. But it's not the same thing. Just outward displays that are not match my inward reality. Finally, I want you to see the future, the present and the future in this, this reality between these two groups. We already know 
partially from verse 4. I will choose harsh treatment for them. They will not, God will not answer them in their midst. He will not hear those prayers that are not prayed through Christ and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and shows that in which I did not delight. They were completely on their own agenda, their own self-revelation. But realize, to those who believe in God's word, your brothers will hate you and cast you out for my name's sake. That's why we find ourselves on the opposite side many times between those who believe in the word and those who don't, yet are both look like they're supposed to be Christians. Uh, we just come comp- from completely different worldviews. The world sees this, and it's confusing, for sure. But verse 6 paints this final picture of this conflict. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies. And notice what he's doing here. He's got the people of God, Judah. He's making a clear-cut distinction between those who approach him the right way, those who approach him the wrong way. And now he's putting into language of final judgment those who are named by him in their nation. They're part of the people who reject God outright. So the enemies of God could actually be within the building, um, but because they don't approach God the way he says they should approach him, They are part of the enemies of God in reality, and God will bring recompense. It's the heavy reality. It should compel us when we hear this, and it's meant to do this for the first audience. It should compel those who are waffling in their devotion to God. It should compel them to come to God, to repent. That's that's the the power of God's word in this instance. Uh, The person who is humbled by this comes to him in faith, comes to him and is redeemed. But the other will just, a person who hears this uh, from the other side of it will not be moved, will not even care because it's not the word of God as far as they're concerned anyways. They're not trembling before it. Here's an application, though, I want to warn us about. What does this mean for us? Well, we could go the route of the noxious religion invading. The PCA, this could happen. It could happen at Redeemer. It makes me sick to think of somebody some years from now in this pulpit not believing in the word of God, not clearly preaching the gospel. It makes me sick to think of that. I mean, one of the reasons that when people ask me what the Lord did to clarify his call to me into ministry, and for me, I sat in a, in a church for years, um, inwardly begging the, the pastor to tell me how to be right with God. I was a teenager. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I should go to hell. No one had to argue. I was just ripe and ready, sitting at the edge of my pew. Tell me how do I be right. It was a hellish experience to live like that. And nobody would tell me year after year, week after week. Nobody would make it clear to me. And finally, when I heard the gospel for the first time clearly from somebody and realized that's it, I thought to myself, and I think it's God prompted, I will never, ever live my life without making sure everybody I know knows how to be right with God. They may reject it if I tell them that message, but I'm going to tell them. And that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my, that's all I care to do. So when you think of this kind of thing creeping in, it just seems to me, how could that happen here? Here's how it would happen for us. It could happen that way. But how it would happen for us? If we get so arrogant that we have it right, we are now ripe too. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand passion and surety about what the Word says for meaning that I think I'm right and everyone else is wrong. I just think this is what the Word says. Let's analyze it together. I'm not telling you to listen just because I said it. You go home, read it. Analyze it. Study it. But if we all agree it is God's Word, 
that we're going to have some passion about what it says, and that will come off to some as though, oh, they think they're right and everyone's wrong. That may come off that way. That's not fair. But there could be something in us that makes us arrogant, that really does make us judge other Christians, even other faithful Christians, and say that they don't do it just quite right like we do it. And that's pride. And pride cannot be in a position to be contrite, and it cannot be in a position to tremble at the gospel. Do you see this? So for people who may be in a place where we have these, these like convictions, the danger for us would be that we become prideful in that. And that's dangerous, and it could somehow lead to the same way and corrupt us in some fashion too. We always approach God the same way, no matter how passionate we are about what it says. We have to approach him knowing he is the great God of heaven and earth. We have to be humble by this. We have to be contrite about our sin, our ongoing sin. Yes, we've been saved by Christ, and we know our position in Christ, but you know and I know we still sin every day. And so we have contrition over this, knowing who our God is. And then we long for, we tremble at his word to hear it tell us again how we might be saved. And that doesn't get old. The answer for maintaining the right approach to God is to be continually trembling at his word. Outward displays of devotion to God must match an inward reality or they are empty acts of noxious religion that is odious to God. This is a heavy message in Isaiah, as much of Isaiah has been, but it's a needed one. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, we confess our propensity to be more fearful of man than we are of you. We know where this leads. Please guard us from false worship. Guard us from arrogance about anything. Please plant contrition in us so that we might tremble at your word. And thank you for giving us your word that declares so clearly your gospel of grace through Christ. Lord, again, please guard us from complacency. Give us fervency for sharing in declaring your word instead. I pray this in Christ. Amen.